we were together during the first service, and you know, I go show how uh, fashion aware I am. I did not see your shirt until just a minute ago. I did not know it was possible to have an allergy to Green Bay, but yep. I guess I guess that can happen. I'm going to tell happen. you. So teachers get a lot of weird gifts. I mean, we get a lot of cups, a lot of Starbucks and Dunkin' gift cards, and that's all well and good. But th- I think this is the coolest teacher gift I ever got. The Brick family got this for me uh, a couple years ago, and it is my favorite. Um, when I'm not wearing my Dicka jersey, it's my favorite shirt because now, like, it, it keeps Bob at a safe distance. There's no other Packer fans. Like, I, I basically have a circle of cheese. that I get to eat cheese, but I, I don't have to be around any cheese heads. I'm, no, I'm kidding. I'm um, careful in using this term because I know it's a serious thing, but I was telling my, my family this week through text, you know, the Bills are playing today against Miami. We need to win and all that. And I said, that team, I just, I have childhood PTSD. I mean, I... They lost so many Bunch times. Bunch of losers. Yeah. Broke my heart so many times. They could be winning 95 to 3, and I'd still say, there's a chance. There's a chance <laughs> we're going to lose this thing. So, oh well. Yeah. Good to see you today. A couple things that I wanted to start with. The first is something that happened just prior to the first service. Y'all, we have people around here that serve fantastically, and it's so behind the scenes that you don't even notice. So, about 15 minutes before the first service, we're trying to figure out a little glitch that we're having lately with words. You click the button, it doesn't want to shift, and I'm like, why don't we try a wired keyboard? So I plug in the wired keyboard, and all of a sudden, the whole screen, everything on the screen goes away. The screen back there has little boxes that show you what's the picture going to be that we're going to next? What are the lyrics we're going to next? What are all these things? And 15 minutes before, it all goes away. We're trying to figure it out, and poor Michelle did that whole last service blind and did it beautifully. So thank you, Michelle. You're awesome. You're awesome. And it turns out that I'm the one that messed it up. There was a little button that I hit that destroyed the universe. Don't let me near (laughs) technology. So anyway, there's the lesson of that. But then the other thing about serving, this this happened last week. And um, Emmett went through a couple weeks of not feeling well. And so we, you know, we, we try to teach him the, the Christian virtue of sharing, but you don't share your diseases. You keep those to yourself. So he didn't go in to his normal uh, baby time in the infant nursery. Instead, last week, he stayed out with, uh, with his grandma at the info hub. And so he's out there having a good time. And we do some things around here very much by design and on purpose. And they're, I don't know. They're, they're not efficient. They're not efficient. And one of the things I learned years ago is when you're, learning, when you're working with people, everything isn't about efficiency. Everything isn't about making sure it runs as smoothly as it can. You want to make sure you get people involved and, and whatever. So one example, you might wonder sometimes, why don't we have an unmanned check-in station so that I can just click this thing ahead of time? Because we want you to stop and say hello. We want you to make a human connection. Mm-hmm. High-tech demands high-touch. We need that connection. The other thing we do is we make sure that whether it's infant nursery, toddlers, uh, toddler and preschool, uh, kinder, the kinder room, and even big kids, that our kids are with the same people every week. So it's not just, it's not a rotation, which would probably be a lot more efficient and easy, you know, having the same person there all the time, making the connection with that child is just ever so important. Well, not even, and, that goes up through junior high, like same small group leader. They, those yeah. kids know yeah. I'm coming and I, I can not only trust this person, but I, like, I am eager to, to see them and be with them. 
Because we're fully aware that one of the most traumatic moments of the day for many of you is dropping your kid off at that door, and some of them go running in, and others are like, you're putting me in here again. So having the same person is really helpful. So he's out with Grandma, and Emmett has this, he's learned sign language. We tried to teach him all done. Well, this has turned into everything now. And, and he adds some beauty to it. He kind of, he takes his hands and swirls them, kind of like he's polishing a snow globe, you know? So he'll just kind of do this. And he does this in particular when he, want, when he sees me, the hands start doing the snow globe. So he's out there with Grandma, and uh, Marianne Williamson walks out of the baby nursery. Now, Marianne's been the one to hold him in her arms since the day he was dropped off. Not only is it the same workers, same person. I know we'd love to play share the baby, but he, you know, he gets the comfort of being with this same person. Mm-hmm. So she walks out. He sees her down the hallway and starts, he wanted her. She didn't know. She goes to do something. She's there for several minutes. And the whole time he's just staring, waiting, waiting, waiting. And finally she turns back. And again, I, I love that about our church. I love that that our kids, you talked last week about your team of, of with high school and junior high. Mm-hmm. Our kids love being with the people who serve them. It means so much. So, you know, you may wonder sometimes, why am I doing this? Why am I here? Because it really makes a difference in the lives of people. It really, really matters. It's so. cool because there's just, there's so much turnover and inconsistency everywhere else. Mm-hmm. You know, every grade you go up, you're getting a new coach, you're getting a new yeah. teacher, you're getting new this, new that. And having that stability as long as you can, man, it, it just makes such a difference. Yeah, it's huge. So you got your update late yesterday, and part of the reason is because we're, we're really focusing on two things right now. We're focusing on the gospel reading we've engaged in. So we started that last Wednesday, January 3rd, and we're reading through all the gospels a chapter at a time from now to Easter, actually to the day after Easter. We're trying to make this really, really simple. So in the email, we put the schedule. Read chapter 5 on Sunday, chapter 6 on Monday, and on down the line. There it is right there. There's also a downloadable uh, piece of paper so that you have the whole schedule of 90 days. And on that, we also have the questions that we want you to ask of the passage and perhaps go ahead and journal those. We have a couple different ways that you can engage through technology, whether it's the Dwell app. And one of the things we shifted on the Dwell app this week is we have a, a, a plan called Today's Gospel Reading. And so it's just the chapter, so you can be on target for that particular one or using the Bible app. So uh, I love the Bible app for, for another reason outside of the reading, and that is the, the friendship and accountability that takes place as we're able to see each other, read a day, accomplish a plan, whatever it might be. And actually, you jumped on it this past week, so I've been able to see what's going on with reading. How are you using it? Because you're using it uniquely. Yeah, I'm, I'm not a digital Bible reader, and that's, you know, I'm not calling anybody out saying, that's not the real Bible. That's not me, okay? But I am a puppy dog, and if there's a ball in the room, I'm chasing it, and, you know, I, every squirrel, squirrel, squirrel. So when I have my phone, if I'm trying to read my Bible on my phone, there's a hundred different tennis balls and squirrels running around that phone. There's Twitter, there's emails, there's notifications. So I'm constantly, you know, if I'm, if I'm reading and a notification pops up, it's hard to swipe that notification away. Mm-hmm. And for me, I'm someone who, when my phone is away, it is away, away. Because uh, it can just turn into 30 minutes of, why were you reading about baseball moves that are never going to happen? You know? mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. So I, 
I purposefully am not doing the, the reading on my phone. I'm instead on my dresser. I have my Bible open to the, the chapter for that day, and, and I read it physically standing at my dresser, which is not a posture I'm used That's to. Cool. Um, so it, it doesn't allow me to, you know, if I was on my phone, if I, even if I was trying to do it first thing in the morning, pull the phone out, and I'm all groggy-headed, I'd, I would swipe through those verses so fast and just check the box, right? But no, I'm getting up, I'm reading in a way that I've never done before. Now, I've, I've read standing before, but I, I, for my own personal, you know, it's, it's like up at about chest level, so I'm, I'm reading, and then I go to my phone, open up the Bible app, check off that I've done that reading. And the reason that I'm doing that is not to be like, hey, look at me. Because a lot of times when I do plans and things, I'll keep it private mm-hmm. because you know, I'm, it's, I'm not trying to be boastful. I'm not mm-hmm. trying to say, look at how much I read. Mm-hmm. But, I, but I've realized that for this kind of thing, I think it's really valuable for not just the kids that I shepherd to see, yes, he's on it and he's doing it, but I think it's, it's valuable in establishing patterns for my family. Mm-hmm. I want Emmett to, to be able to see like, all right, dad's usually grumpy in the morning, but for this stretch, he was up reading the Bible. So, you know, he's starting his day at 6.30 by reading the Gospels, and, and that has made a change, hopefully, in the way that I you know, speak and act in the morning. So I, I don't know if you have a regular pattern with your family of Bible reading. Maybe you have a Sunday dinner that is established, or you know, one night of the week that you guys are all together, and, and you've kind of kept that from COVID or whatever. Mm-hmm. Read, read the chapter of the day together. That's cool. Yeah. But I also want to encourage you, if, even if you're not a, a digital reader like I am not, check those boxes and get your kids to see um, that you're doing it. Because there's something super powerful, I, I think, in your kid opening up an app and not just seeing that you, know, you like their Instagram, but um, instead they're seeing, hey, my mom took the time, even though she is spinning so many plates, you know, making dinners, driving me everywhere. She took the time to engage with God today. My dad, even though he just worked 8, 10, 12 hours, as soon as he got home, I can see the timestamp. The first thing he did was get his Bible reading done. It just it establishes this, um, this idea that it's, it's not a game, that mm-hmm. it's not something that we take for granted. It's something that is purposeful and meaningful. Mm-hmm. And that getting soaked into your kids' brains and hearts every day, I think, is really really impactful for families. That's great. That's wonderful. Um, you're, back, you're back on schedule with students, right? Yep. We are back, um, back tonight from 6 to 8 with our high schoolers, and then Wednesday is 6.30 to 8.30. So what I'm going to have you do today for the, for the gospel reading, we, we, we would be reading chapter 5 today, but on Sunday mornings, we're talking about something that I read during the week, and the Spirit prompted me, let's talk about this on Sunday morning. So that's going to come from chapter 4. So if you wouldn't mind going ahead and reading chapter 4 for us, I'd appreciate it. This is the temptation of Jesus. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted there by the devil. For 40 days and 40 nights, he fasted and became very hungry. During that time, the devil came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell those stones to become loaves of bread. But Jesus told him no. The scriptures say people do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city, Jerusalem, to the highest point of the temple and said, If you are the Son of God, jump off. For the scriptures say 
He will order his angels to protect you, and they will hold you up with their hands so that you won't even hurt your foot on a stone. Jesus responded, the scriptures also say that you must not test the Lord your God. Next, the devil took him to the peak of a very high mountain and showed him all of the kingdoms of the world in all of their glory. I will give it all to you, he said, if you will just kneel down and worship me. Get out of here, Satan, Jesus told him. For the scriptures say, you must worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Then the devil went away. God's angels came and took care of Jesus. When Jesus heard that John had been arrested, he left Judea and returned to Galilee. He went first to Nazareth, then left there and moved to Capernaum, beside the Sea of Galilee in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. Naphtali, sorry. Um, this fulfilled what God said through the prophet Isaiah. In the land of Zebulun and of Naphtali, beside the sea, beyond the Jordan River, in Galilee, where so many Gentiles live, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. And for those who lived in the land where death cast its shadow, a light has shined. From then on, Jesus began to preach, repent of your sins and turn to God, for the kingdom of heaven is near. One day, as Jesus was walking along the shore of the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon and also, and also called Peter, or I'm sorry, also called Peter and Andrew, throwing a net into the water, for they fished for a living. Jesus called out to them, Come, follow me, and I will show you how to fish for people. They left their nets at once and followed him. A little farther up the shore, he saw two other brothers, James and John, sitting in their boat with their father, Zebedee, repairing their nets. And he called to them to come too. Immediately, they followed him, leaving their boat and their father behind. Jesus traveled throughout the region of Galilee, teaching in the synagogues and announcing the good news of the kingdom. He healed every kind of disease and illness. News about him spread as far as Syria, and the people began bringing to him all who were sick. Whatever their sickness or disease was, or if they were demon-possessed or epileptic or paralyzed, he healed them all. Large crowds followed him wherever he went. People from Galilee, the Ten Towns, Jerusalem, from all over Judea, and from the east of the Jordan River. I'm grateful to you, God, for Matthew, the apostle and disciple who you called to follow. Thank you that he accepted your call. Thankful for the gifts and talents that you gave him to be able to write so beautifully and for the, the filling of the Holy Spirit, inspiration of the Holy Spirit that caused him to write the very words of God. Pray that as we read this book this month that we would find ourselves inspired and challenged. Thank you for the message. Thank you for learning more about who Jesus is. In your name, amen. So I think it was yesterday evening, I was doing some Facebook scrolling, which I won't be doing for the next 21 days, but doing some scrolling, and I came across uh, Mission Bible, I follow them, and there was a little video by Errol McFadden, he was talking about what they're going to be doing from now through Easter, and they're going to be trekking through the book of John, and doing that from now until Easter, and then, and then he held up a, 
a booklet, a, a journal Bible, the New Living, by, by New Living Translation, the Philemon Bible, and said, and one of these would be really helpful. And I looked at it. My first thought was, y'all are going to think we're colluding on our series. We really aren't. What we're doing is following what the Holy Spirit is asking us to do. And I think that the Spirit is calling on His church right now to get their nose back in the Gospels, to get back to Jesus, to get back to the teachings of Jesus, and to follow Him wholeheartedly. And so we've taken on from now through Easter, not just the book of John, but all four Gospels, reading a chapter a day. And then we're coming to Sunday morning, and, and one of those chapters, one of those areas, we're going to come back and, and talk about it here uh, during our Sunday morning teaching, and then we're going to be forming groups around the reading as well. So I thought a good place to start today is more broad, broadly to simply ask the question, what is a gospel? Why use the word gospel? What's that all about? And as you look at the gospels, you might ask the question, not only what is the gospel, but who wrote it? And why does John's gospel feel so different than the other three? The other three seem to have this similarity, and then, and then John just seems to be off doing his own thing. Why is there a difference between the two? When we use the word gospel, it gets used two ways. One is the story about Jesus that can save a soul. His death his burial and resurrection, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 refers to this as the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then on top of that, we have these four books that are referred to as gospels. It's a, it's a genre of literature. It's a way of writing to express a story, but the story is intended to make a point. So what a gospel is not is a really good place to start. A gospel is not intended as a detailed history. So you're not reading each of the Gospels looking for a history of what Jesus did and the timeline of that history. And as you're reading the different Gospels, you might go, wait a second, I thought this happened after this story in, in Matthew, but it's happening over here in Mark. Why, why, why is there a difference? It's not intended as a history, and yet the things that are written are historically accurate. These are not necessarily eyewitness accounts. Two of the Gospel writers did not follow Jesus as disciples while he was on earth. John Mark, he's referred to in Acts. Remember, he's, he's the fellow that Barnabas wanted to bring along on the missionary journey, and Paul said, nope, he abandoned us before. He's the one that has the privilege of writing the Gospel of Mark, those 16 chapters, and he gathers those eyewitness accounts and puts them together. It's the shortest and simplest of the Gospels. And then you have Luke. Luke, as well, is a traveling companion of Paul. He's a physician. He's there to help help Paul and take care of him on his missionary journeys. At the beginning of Luke, as well as the beginning of Acts, Luke makes very clear in writing those two books, I am, an eye, I am not an eyewitness, but I've collected eyewitnesses, eyewitness accounts of what happened with Jesus, and I've brought them together in this particular book. And he says, I'm writing this to you, most excellent Theophilus. And it's either an individual that he's writing to, or more likely, Theophilus is put together as lovers of God. He's writing to lovers of God. So he's expressing these. They're not necessarily eyewitnesses. Two of them are. Matthew is an eyewitness. He's called by Jesus to be a disciple, as well as John, the disciple Jesus loved. Further, they're not fiction, yet they can legitimately be called a story. And I say that because sometimes when we use the word story, we think fake. We think fiction. These are stories, but they're absolutely historically accurate. 
A gospel is a story composed to convey a message. So each of these gospel writers take the stories and craft them in such a way that they're trying to convey a unique message. We refer to this as authorial intent. The author intends to say something. They intend to express something. And it's our job to dig in and figure out what is the author trying to say. Each of the four gospel authors shaped and arranged their stories about Jesus differently so they can emphasize different things about Jesus. The four authors tell the story of Jesus from different perspectives or different viewpoints. If four of us were standing on Route 6 today and an accident happened and the police asked us to give a report, we would all not give the exact same word-for-word report and we'd probably all mention something different based on our unique perspective or unique viewpoint. Each gospel was written for a different original group of people. Now the gospels are for all of us, but they had an original audience in mind. They were written by a different author who was trying to accomplish a different purpose in each of the writings. So as you look at the writings, you'll see Matthew focuses on the royalty of Jesus. He focuses on Jesus being a king. And that's why right from the beginning, he he shows us that he's part of the Davidic line. Why does he do that? He's writing to a Jewish audience. He's writing to people who are very familiar with the Old Testament law, And he's trying to demonstrate that the law and the prophecies are fulfilled in Jesus, saying that to a Jewish audience. Mark focuses on the servanthood of Jesus, and he's writing to the people of the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire is obsessed with the pecking order. Who's in charge? Who's number one? And here Mark is saying, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. Jesus is the greatest servant of all. It's not about your position. And so he wants to get that message across, the servanthood of Jesus. For Luke, again, Luke is a doctor. He's a physician. He focuses on the humanity of Jesus. You see him really focus in on the personal suffering of Jesus, the pain he endured, the things he went through in the body. And he's writing to the Greeks who are philosophers who care about body and soul. And then John, John is different than all the rest. He's got a different take. He focuses on the deity of Jesus and it's written to everyone, absolutely everyone. In Matthew... Jesus is the son of David. In Mark, he's the son of man. In Luke, he's the son of Adam. And in John, he's the son of God. Now, again, answering that question, why is John a little different than the other three? The other three, first of all, all when, when Jesus is on earth, his teaching is conveyed to his followers, and his followers, very different than now, his followers memorize everything he has to say. They memorize his teaching. And they carry that teaching in memory for a couple decades, and then that teaching starts appearing on paper. So clearly there would be some similarity because they've all memorized the same thing. Further, they're all being guided by the Holy Spirit. But what we have, Luke outright admits, I depended on eyewitness accounts. He's listening to what others have to say. So it's likely that Mark being the first gospel, the others knew that gospel existed. And they used that in part as they were composing their own Gospels as well. John isn't part of that at all. The first three are referred to as the synoptic Gospels. If you look them in a, in a harmony, had Matthew, Mark, and Luke all parallel, you'd see similarities all throughout. John, 
totally different because John is really trying to emphasize as the disciple Jesus loved who God is. Very different way of conveying the message. As you read the Gospels, there are some questions that you need to be asking. What is Jesus saying about himself? Who is he talking to? Is he talking to his disciples? Is he talking to his enemies? Is he talking to a massive crowd? What does Jesus say about God? Well, how does Jesus react in different situations? What pleases him? What upsets him? And what does Jesus tell people to do? So we've begun our reading. We're in the book of Matthew. Today you're reading chapter 5. And as you're reading those, we gave you four, and I'd say five questions to be asking all the time in the Gospels. The first one is this. What surprised you? You're reading this, what just what caught you in a way that you've not been caught before? What surprised you? What does, what does this passage teach you about God? What does this passage teach you about people? And what does this passage uh, tell you to do? How should you put it to action? And then there's this fifth one that we basically say, if you have questions, write them down. You either need to look them up, do more investigation, have a conversation, but figure out what those are. So I've really leaned into question number one. What surprised you? Can I be surprised anymore after years and years of, of reading the Gospels, studying the Bible, what surprised me as I approached the Word of God in the Gospels? So I came to chapter 4, and I started by asking, Dennis, what surprises you? Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Two things surprised me. One, that it took 40 days to be hungry. Takes me about four hours, right? He's at a level of hunger that we don't experience. If you've done long-term fasting, and I have done fasting beyond a single day, there comes a point that your body just goes, all right, you're not going to eat, I'm not going to tell you what to do. And you actually get a little comfortable not eating. I've never made it to 40 days. I've never made it past three. But here's the thing. At 40, your body turns it on again and says, you're about to die unless you eat a sandwich. Get at it. Do something. And so it wakes up. So he's at that point now that his body is saying, if you don't eat soon, you won't be dying on a cross. You'll be dying of starvation. That's what it means when he says he's hungry. His body is saying, eat now. But look at that first line. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Now I'm reading this in light of the last chapter and the final words of the last chapter. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was open. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and landing on Jesus. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love and whom I am well pleased. Do you have someone that you love so much that it hurts? I think after a year, you know I do. And I look at Emmett and I'm like, I look at his little fingers like, I never want anything bad to happen to his little fingers. I never want anything bad to happen to his little head. I never want anything bad to happen to his little body. And I never want anything bad to happen to his little heart. If somebody's mean to him, watch out, I will take you out. I mean, I, I want this child to be bubble-wrapped and protected and safe in a way that I've never cared for a person before. I, I just want to make sure he is safe. 
This is my grandson whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. I don't know about you, I'm expecting chapter 4, verse 1, and Jesus was walking through the meadow, and the daisies were touching his ankles, and the people were listening to him, and they loved him, they loved him, they really loved him. Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, by the Spirit, the Spirit of God. God himself led him to the wilderness. What surprised me? The Spirit led him to danger. We don't want danger. What's our ultimate prayer for all the people we love? God, keep them safe. Keep them safe, God. Keep them safe. Keep them safe. Keep them safe. And what does God say? I love you so much that I'm putting you in harm's way. I love you so much that I'm planting you in the most dangerous place you could be. The Spirit led Jesus to danger. What kind of danger? The danger of the wilderness. It was a danger of isolation, a danger of physical difficulty, a danger of suffering. It's a place of complete suffering, the wilderness. Now, I know we go to Arizona, we go to the desert, we go, isn't this beautiful? And we've got water packs all over us, and we got the car right over there that we can jump in real quick and turn on the air conditioning and get nice and cool once again. The desert is so nice, isn't it? Not when you don't have a car and when you don't have water and there's the hostility of wild animals and scorpions and everything else, it's a horrible place, not only physically, but metaphorically. How many of us are sitting in a wilderness, a dangerous wilderness, a wilderness of hardship, of isolation, of physical difficulty, of suffering? He led him to the wilderness. He led him to be to the danger of being tested by the devil, the devil, a person of sheer evil, a person who is set on destruction, a person who has mastered temptation. He can tempt like no other. He led him to a place of danger, the danger of the fast, deprived of food for 40 days. We can't go for hours deprived of support in a hostile place. We think, I need food or I'm going to die, right? He's deprived of what humans deem essential to function, a place of danger. And he also has to face the danger of the test, the test of stones to bread, the test of jump, they'll catch you, the test of all this can be yours if the price is right. Matthew chapter 4, the tempter, that's what his name literally means. The tempter came to him and said, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written, man will not live on bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. Test number one, make these stones into bread. What did Satan do? Think about the way Satan tempts Jesus because it's the way he tempts us as well. Satan hit him at his current place of weakness. He is starving. And he doesn't waste the temptation on something that's not going to hit him in the moment. He hits him right where he's living in the moment. He is hungry. Have you ever been really, really hungry and driven by Jimmy John's? Oh, man, you catch that smell of bread, and you're like, i got to eat now. Just the mention of bread has to bring memories of that wonderful loaf that Mary used to bake, and he's, he's imagining the smell, and what's the big deal of just taking a taste? He hit him at his current place of weakness, and he does the same to us. 
There's some weakness in your life right now. And Satan's saying, that's a great spot of attack. Satan also suggested, take matters into your own hands. You can handle this. You don't need God. Just, just do it. If you're the son of God, you can make this loaf. And sometimes he's just tempting us. You don't need to depend on God. You don't need to depend on something, somebody else. Just do it yourself. How does Jesus respond? Well, one, he responds with Scripture. I think that is so instructive for us. We need to be able to, in our moment of temptation, know the Scripture to quote, know what to say. But he also responds with spiritual reality. He doesn't just throw the verse out there as magic. What's the spiritual reality? I need God more than I need bread. I need God more than I need food. That's the spiritual reality. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus says, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. What does Satan do? Jump. They'll catch you. Notice two times now he's used the word if. If you're the son of God, just like he did with Eve in the garden, casting that little bit of doubt. Maybe you find yourself being tempted by Satan when he says things like this. If God really loved you, would you be going through this? If God really cared, if God was really present, would you be experiencing? If is a powerful word in temptation. If draws us to horrible places in our mind and heart. And here's the other thing. Satan actually uses God's word to confuse and distort. Satan quotes scripture, word perfect. Word perfect. You know what he does? He says, hey, God promised to protect you. Take advantage of that, why don't you? We do the same thing, you know. Satan will, Satan will cause us to focus on one particular virtue, love. It's all about love. Focus on one particular verse at the exclusion of all the others. You don't, you don't grab onto one virtue at the, at the exclusion of the others. You don't grab onto one verse at the exclusion of the rest of the Word of God. It's not what God was saying in quoting that simple verse. How does Jesus respond? It is written. Where did he write it? I was curious. Where was it written? Psalm 91. Psalm 91 is a beautiful passage, great passage to read before you go to sleep. If you say, the Lord is my refuge, and if you make the most high your dwelling, no harm will overtake you. No disaster will come near your tent, for he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will lift you up in their hands so that you do not strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the cobra. You will trample the great lion and the serpent. Third test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I'll give to you if you will just bow down and worship me. To which Jesus responds, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Test three. All this can be yours if the price is right. Just bow down to me. But here's what's interesting. Satan made a promise he cannot keep. He couldn't give him the world. The world is not his. And unfortunately, just about every temptation we face is a promise of something that if you dive into, you go, that wasn't as good as I thought it would be. 
that didn't fulfill the way I thought it would, that didn't give me the answer I was hoping for. He's full of empty promises, lies in every empty promises. And what does he do? He offers himself as an alternative to God. You don't have to follow that slave driver. Follow me instead. Jesus' response, one, he directly confronts the enemy. Get behind me, Satan. And I think there are times we need to literally say, Satan, get out of my head, get out of my heart, get out of this place. I am covered by the blood of Christ. I am a child of God. Get away from me. Just get away from me right now. He also responds again with Scripture. It is written. Why respond with Scripture? Is, is it some magic boom that, you know, like holding up a cross, now Satan has to go away? Why does he quote? I wonder in part if it comes down to this, who needed to hear it? Jesus needed to hear it. In that moment of temptation, Jesus needed to hear the truth. He needed to have the truth reinforced. I don't need bread. I need my Father. He needed to hear the truth. And then the Bible says the devil left him and the angels, just like Psalm 91 says, the angel came and attended him. So that was my surprise. What does the passage teach me? What should I do? Well, I wonder in particular about what it teaches me about fasting. Because fasting is not a common practice in modern American evangelical life. Well, some of the things it taught me, I can live without it. What's it? Anything I think I can't live without. Jesus says, you, you need God more than bread. You need to talk to God more than you need to check your social media. Whatever it is you think you need, you can't actually live without it. Further, I can be stronger spiritually when I, I can be stronger spiritually when I am weaker in myself. Jesus says at his moment of greatest physical weakness, and yet it was actually the fast that, that caused him to be strong enough to stand spiritually against Satan. I further learned if Jesus didn't, why wouldn't I? Jesus shows us how to live life in a body. He shows us how to live life here on earth. And then there's this timing. The timing of the fast is between his baptism and his public ministry. Should we not more often enter into intense seasons of prayer and fasting when we are about to do something we believe God is calling us to do? And so once again this year, we've done this in the past, we're going to spend 21 days praying and fasting, united hearts, together in this. And as we do, there are three questions we need to ask. Why should we fast? What should we fast from? And how? How will this work? So, let's start with the why. Fasting happens in the body. Evangelicals focus a lot on the heart and mind and soul. And they don't focus a lot on the body. Our bodies train our souls. Our bodies train our spirits. Our bodies, if we're going to fast, fasting trains us to say no. It trains us to resist. If, you, if your choice involves this, I promise you, we, we turn to this way more often than we think we do, right? And if, if, it's your, if it involves this, you're going to find yourself, especially for over the first three or four days, going, oh, oh, oh. I mean, it's so reflexive, and it teaches us to say, I'm not doing that right now. 
food. It makes it, I'm not doing that right now. And it ultimately trains us, Paul says, train yourselves to say no to ungodly habits. That training comes through something like pushing aside something that it's actually not sinful, but just training myself to be able to say no. It trains my body. It shows us we can live without it. After 21 days, you're going to go, holy cow, I'm still alive. I'm functioning. I might even be a little better, you know? It focuses our hearts and our minds. There's a sense in which it serves as an alarm clock. If I go to check Facebook and, oh, the app's not there anymore because I took it off for 21 days, now it goes, why did I do that? Oh, yeah, because I want to talk to God because I want more of God. It, it, It sets a reminder. It also expresses sincerity and intensity. Who would do this except that you really care about connecting with God in an intense and meaningful way? And it reflects the actions and the hearts of Jesus. Jesus did this, folks. Why would we not do what Jesus did? What? What should we fast from? We're not going to prescribe everybody's going to do the same thing. That's not the way this works. You need to talk to God. What's the Spirit telling you to push aside? I think you need to push aside something you will notice. Uh, I would love to say for the next 21 days, I am not going to eat black licorice. I hate black licorice. I never eat black licorice. I, I don't know why it exists. Some of you love black licorice. You can have mine. I don't like black licorice. And so we'll do something foolish like, that's it, I'm giving up black licorice. Good for you. No. You give up something you notice, something that'll ping you, something that might even hurt a little. You notice it. You give up something you think you need. If I don't have this, I can't survive. Okay, well, let's see how that works. You push aside something that controls you. There are things in our life that have more control over us than we would like to believe. Now, I'm not saying you're going to fast from sin for 21 days and then go back at it. We repent of sin. We don't fast from sin, right? But there are things that you might partake in that lead to the next step is sin, and you say, I'm not doing that, pushing that aside. Push aside something that brings your focus to God. So ultimately, you know, this idea of not eating bread, the bread of life, it pushes me toward God and push aside something that perhaps you could do with others. Maybe your family will do this together. You'll get a couple other people at church. You'll get your group and say, why don't we try this particular thing together and see how it works? How about the how? How do you fast? Well, the Bible says, you're going to read this tomorrow, Matthew chapter 6. When you fast, you keep it between you and God. And that's hard to do when you're doing it with a group, right? Obviously, we know we're going to fast. But I love what Jesus says, and again, you'll read this tomorrow. When you fast... You, you, you don't show off about it. You, know, you don't walk around, oh, I'm fasting. I love God so much. Oh, I'm so spiritual. Look at me. I'm fasting. That's not. He says just the opposite. He says basically this. You take a bath. You take a shower. You put on nice clothes. And you go about your day and nobody notices. Because this is between you and God. Keep the focus on spiritual realities I need to communicate with God more than I need to communicate through this. I need God as my sustenance more than I need this particular food or this particular meal. Keep it focused on others for support. Again, you may join with a couple other people and say, why don't we try this together? And I would say keep it expecting to be transformed. 
expecting 21 days from now that God will really have worked a change in your life and keep expecting God to respond. And I got to say, this may be the most difficult part for some of us because we have fasted, because we have prayed, and we're back bringing the same issue to God once again and wondering, when are you going to respond? And in faith, we pray again and we fast again. So how will this work for us as a group? Oh, I'm sorry, the how. I want to talk about the how of prayer because it's fasting and prayer. You need to figure out a time and a place you're going to pray. Maybe you've already got the rhythm, the morning, noon, and right night rhythm. Maybe that'll be your time. But figure out a time and a place that you will not only fast, but talk to God. You might want a focusing routine. I love what Brian said about he's doing his reading, standing, looking at it on his dresser. Something that caused me to say, this is different than normal. This isn't what I normally do. Your focusing routine and prayer may be something as simple as lighting a candle or having a particular chair or a particular place you go to, but something that brings focus to the moment. Maybe it's a unique posture. You're deciding during this 21 days, I'm going to kneel. I don't normally kneel. Or when I pray, I'm going to stand looking into the sky, talking to God, something unique in your posture. Have a specific request. What are you bringing to God in this moment? What's the thing, the area that you're saying, God, I need you? Name that desire. So how will we do this together? Well, a couple things. Every day we'll have a piece of writing that you can go to and look at. I'll have it posted, but I said at the end of the last service too, I've, I've not wanted to fill your inbox with emails, but I think the best thing to do is just the next 21 days you're getting an email. This is our focus of the day. Specific prayers will be mentioned in there as well as specific stages of what we're going through in the fast. Beyond that, my email is real simple. My name is Dennis. You know the little at squiggle. The church is Southfield Church and then .com, Dennis at SouthfieldChurch.com. I'd love for you to go ahead and email me. Share what you're praying about. I'd love to pray with you in it. Share your wins. You know, you, you didn't think you'd make it three days without your phone. And my goodness, I'm on day four. Isn't this a miracle? Woo! And you can share your struggles too because I promise you there will be struggles as we do this together. Why are we fasting? This is going to sound strange, but there's a piece right now that I'm saying I don't truly know. I don't have the big thing that we're like going after. That's the thing we need to pray for. What I do believe is as I've spent a lot of time with people in their situations and problems over the last couple of years, we really need to see that God is the answer to what's happening in our lives and not everything else. We turn to everything but God. And we need a sincere desire of turning our hearts and minds back to God. We need a season of saying, God, in an intense way, I'm going to talk to you and I'm going to push something aside, not to earn your grace or favor, it doesn't work that way, but to say, God, I want you more. And so, God, I pray today, Help us. Help us to talk to you. To push something aside because you matter more. Show us at the end of this season the way that, that you did a great work in us. Lead us by your spirit wherever you would. Even if it's a place of danger, lead us by your spirit. In Jesus' name.
So we're going to walk to communion. The bread and the cup, tables at the front and the back, gluten-free on the sides of the platform. There's one at the back as well. And as we do, we're going to sing a collection of songs that really launch our hearts and our minds for where we're going over the next 21 days. We're going to start with just an expression of gratitude. God, thank you, thank you, thank you. We're going to throw out there the sincere desire, God, this thing has not changed. I need to hear from you. And then we're going to realize that sometimes, you know, you're just, you're stuck in the middle. Doesn't seem like things are changing. But God is always there. He's always there. We need his presence more than we need anything else. So we'll start sitting as we sing this song, go to communion, and then I imagine after a while we'll rise and sing together. It is possible as we talk about entering into a, another season of fasting and prayer that you find yourself saying, why? I have fasted, I have prayed. I've sung something has to break so many times. And it's still there. And it hasn't changed. Why? Kim and I were watching the other night, I, I think it's a new movie that's out. Um, it's called His Only Son. It's about Abraham. I'm watching that story, and they, they do a beautiful job, I think, showing the humanity of the Bible character. So often we just kind of read it in a sterile way. Oh, easy to wait 25 years for a promise to be fulfilled. Boom, boom, done. And to see the pain of waiting and waiting and waiting 25 years for a promise to be fulfilled. And honestly, more than once in the movie, I'm just thinking, God, why didn't you just, you know, you're going to have a son. Nine months later, boom, there he is. Why? Why put him through 25 years? And I think what it comes down to is what we're about to enter into. That we think something has to break is, God, I want the answer to my prayer. For the next 21 days, I'm going to do everything I can to get it. And yet, there's this other part that not for a minute was I forsaken. The Lord is in this place. The Lord is in this place. And we think it's all about the answer, and he's going, no, it's all about me. And so I hope that by the end of 21 days, you will have more of God. You'll be drawn, drawn in closeness to God in a way that you've waited for for a long, long time. Uh, it, I went a little long today at 7.38, so, or 11.38. 7.38, that would be a miracle. <laughs> <coughs> So, you know, we normally do our seven minutes at the end, and I know what some of you are thinking on that seven-minute thing. That's your black licorice, right? You're, you're going you're gonna to give up the seven minutes of hanging around as you're fast. Well, if God's calling you to do that, you do what God's calling you to do, but I suspect it's this little guy standing right here on the shoulder saying do that. So if you can, hang out. Talk to somebody you haven't talked to before. Talk about what you're going to do for the fast, whatever it is, but um, get ready. Let's see what God does. Enjoy your week.